Hey, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How's your week going? It is going well. How about you? What's going on with you? Uh, it's going well. Uh, update on my post ACL surgery progress. Uh, today is January 25th. And so now I am well over a month since my surgery on December 12th, and I'm continuing to make strides. And I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> Literally, uh, I'm doing more cycling now that I'm able to make a full rotation. And that has been life-changing to be able to get on a bike with low resistance and just to have that consistent movement again. I really missed being able to move that way. And so that has been great. I've been doing more walking and um I also have been doing increased strength training. So I feature that a lot of my weekly videos, but I'm continuing each week to, to build back better. And uh, one of the things that for me is um, hard is actually not doing too much. Something that's really important with my injury is that while I may be able to lift more, I may be able to move more. The graft is, is delicate and it takes time for my body to be able to absorb it. And that is why I'm so grateful to have experts who I can rely on because this is not intuitive. I can squat 90 degrees, but I shouldn't yet. I have to keep it closer to 45 because I don't want to damage the graft. It doesn't hurt when I do it. So just note to anyone who's navigating injury, there is a reason why PTs are so helpful. It's not necessarily because I need a push from a PT. It's more for me. I need restraint. And I don't want to do as much as I can and throw everything at this and then end up hurting the very thing that I'm trying to protect. So that's kind of where I am now in my journey. It's more about someone not pushing me too hard while at the same time getting me to do certain movements that will take more work right now because neuromuscularly I'm not connecting yet. So squeezing a glute on this side is very hard for me, or I have a ton of tightness in my adductor. So my back is jacked. So that's hard for me because I, I really want to stretch in a certain way and I can't. So figuring out creative ways to address those issues. So I don't injure a different side of my body is really important. So that's where I am right now. That sounds a lot like, um, what we do for a lot of our runners. We have a lot of runners, you know, people think that they, uh, uh, runners come to coaches to push them. But I always tell our runners that we coach that oftentimes more often than not, I think we're not holding people back, but making sure they're being smart about their training. And while they could go out and run 20 miles really fast, that's not what's productive part of their training. So I think that's a really good point that we, even we as coaches need outside experts sometimes to hold us back from uh, doing too much. So um, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and again, this is the other thing. I think I've mentioned this before. I don't miss running yet. And I think I'm still at the point where I'm focused so much on being able to do the everyday well, that I don't look outside and say, oh, I wish I were running right now. Now, of course the weather helps. It's not like I'm eager to run in the cold, but even the movement itself, I'm not there yet. It's almost like in inherently your body knows, you know, what? my your body, body knows. knows and my brain is protecting me from longing for that movement quite yet. I know I'll get there, but I'm, I'm not there yet. And it I will think always be there. Right. Yes. That's really interesting. It is. I think I'll know when I'm ready. So anyway, we have a, a really cool guest this week on the podcast and, um, his name is Tony Reed and he is the co-founder and president of the National Black Marathoners Association. And we have him on this week because a brand new documentary just came out called Breaking Three that features the nine African-American women who at the time of making the documentary have broken three hours in a marathon. There at the time were only nine. And that's a little bit what of what we talk about in our interview with Tony, because statistically speaking, given the number of women who have broken three hours in the history of marathons, that's surprising, isn't it? It, it is. And and we met Tony because um, in Boston last year, um, if, if people have been listening since last Boston, we'll remember we did a live podcast recording in Boston with Sheree Turner, who's another podcaster of Strides Forward podcast. Sorry, it's now called women's women's running story. She changed the name. Yeah. Right. Okay. Sorry. Thank you for at the time it was Strides Forward when we recorded last time. Uh oh, we recorded in Boston. Um, but thanks for for clarifying that. And um, we recorded with um 
two really outstanding runners from kind of both ends of the running um, spectrum in terms of age and uh, longevity and running. And we had a newer runner, Megan Kripchen, who we've had on the podcast since, who's, you know, up and coming elite runner. Um, but we also had Marilyn Bevins on. And Marilyn uh, ran back in the 1970s, I believe. And now I'm like, I think it was, was it 72 was her year that she ran, I think? 75. 75. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. Um, and Marilyn um, was uh, the first black African-American woman um, to go sub three hours in the marathon. And she um, ran Boston back in the seventies at the very beginning of when women were first allowed to run. So we had her on the panel and we met Tony through that process because he was really, they were just starting to screen the um, documentary while we were in Boston. Um, so, uh, so you know, kind of Marilyn's story um, stuck out to us. We, we love meeting Marilyn and we were really eager to, to, to hear the rest of the stories. And so um, I just recently got to watch a documentary and I was really, um, it, the, their stories are all very uh, different, but also very similar. And what struck me was just that um, even though these are women who, um, you know, many of them, you know, all of them have run sub three, but they're all very fast runners. Um, but we all have kind of very similar running stories and the struggles that we've had um, and the you know, process that we've gone through in training, they're all very similar. And it was just really, um, I thought, um, eye-opening to me to hear it from uh, an African-American woman's perspective. Um, so, uh, you know, so we really wanted to talk as we start to plan for this year, going back to Boston. And, um, you know, we're talking to Sheree again about doing another uh, another live podcast. Uh, we were reflecting on our experiences last year and how that is, uh, you know, really, um, uh, again, in the stories of these of of all these women in the in the documentary, um, and really wanted to bring Tony back on to talk about where the documentary has gone since since last year. Yeah, so we were watching it this week because even though the documentary has been out for a little while, this week it was released on Amazon Prime. So on Monday. I watched it before you, you watched it after me because we knew we were going to have Tony on this week. And I think day one, it was released maybe last Friday. So I watched it on Monday. I was by myself and it's great. It features the nine women and I'm, we're going to talk about them in a second, but as I'm watching it at the very end, spoiler alert, because we already posted this there, we are Lisa, we're in the documentary. We had no idea I start to scream. I'm like, oh my God. And um, I immediately pause it. I take a photo of it. I send it to you. I said, I cannot believe this. Our panel that you just referenced is on the documentary when we were, of course, interviewing Marilyn Bevins. And Tony was there. He was the person we communicated with to get Marilyn on our panel. And he, of course, brought Marilyn to the live podcast and we met him there. But we were confused because when he talked about the documentary, it had already been made. He had already shared with us last year that the documentary had been completed and that they were submitting it for review at various film festivals. So imagine our shock when we suddenly saw ourselves in this documentary after learning it had been completed. So uh, to be clear, we, it was just a quick picture yes. of us, our panel, and it was in reference to Marilyn. So, you know, it was just a quick picture, but it was very cool to see. And and what's neat is that, you know, that um, Tony and Tony talks about this in his, when we, we speak to him. First of all, let's just back up and say Tony is not a a documentary maker. That is not he's not a filmmaker. That's not his background. He's a CPA. He's somebody with a passion for running and somebody who wanted to amplify the stories of these nine women. He said, you know, he explains it when we, when we speak to him, how surprised he was to find out, um, first of all, how difficult he thought it would be to identify who these women were. And then once that was done, how, how few there were. And um, so he, he has no professional background in, in filmmaking and he were making this film during COVID, which, uh, you know, is presents a whole other layer of complications and things, you know, things that they had to work around. Um, but we, you know, we thought, um, he was done with the documentary and he talks to us about how he kind of changed the the ending of the documentary and, and how, how many um, iterations of the documentary he's gone through as he's gotten feedback through the screenings. He's changed and he's gone in and edited and added and taken away. Um, and so after after we did our panel, he actually added some in. So that was kind of neat. And I really I do like hearing about um, how 
he took the feedback of, of people who watched the documentary early on and how he was able to make edits before, you know, at, at each iteration of the, of the documentary. Yeah, it was really cool. So we reached out to him last week and we just said, thank you so much for um, this wonderful documentary. We loved watching it. And wow, that was really cool to see our photo in it. How did that happen? Because it was already completed. And he wrote, on my return flight from Boston, I was looking at the photos and videos when it hit me that I had a new and better ending to the documentary. So I did a storyboard on the flight. As soon as I got home, I changed the video. Afterwards, it started winning awards. And we That's just thought awesome. that was so cool because we were so honored that Marilyn decided to be on our panel and we were just, she was such a hoot. It's, it's recorded. It's in our podcast library. If anyone wants to listen to it from last year, who hasn't, she was unbelievably funny and uh, just her, her life journey is really amazing. And so the fact that even Tony was able to enjoy it after hearing her story so many times, and then decided to weave it somehow into the documentary from a plane flight through storyboarding when he has no documentary making experience prior to this is, is quite amazing. So props to you, Tony. And uh, we just so appreciated him coming on to the podcast and sharing uh, how he made the documentary and of course, amplifying the stories of these nine women. And now there are more women and he'll talk about that, but this is only at the time of the making the documentary. And I just want to read the names of the women who are featured in the documentary. So of course we already mentioned Marilyn Bevins um, and Marilyn went sub three in Boston for the first time in 1975. And then again in 1979 in 249.56. Uh, the next woman is Ella Willis Glaze and her first sub three was the Detroit Free Press Marathon in 1981. And then again in 1989, 238.22. So that's pretty cool too, is there was an eight year gap between her two sub threes. The next woman is Michelle Bush Cuke. She did in 1981 in the Avon Marathon, 239.07. And then in 1991, 10 years later, CIM, she did 237.41. Michelle Tiff Hill is the fourth woman. In 1980 at the Fiesta Bowl Marathon, she did 257.14. And then in 1983 in the Sri Shamoy Marathon, 250.19. Ingrid Eugenia Walters, 2014. Ingrid did at the Chicago Marathon, 254.58. And then in 2019, Los Angeles Marathon, 248.03. And that was as a master's runner. And she talks about that. And then our one of our local runners here in the DC area, Elisa Harvey in 1999, Richmond Marathon, her only marathon. She did a mere 249.28. And then following in her footsteps is in 2006, also a local runner, Samia Akbar, in 2006, she did 234.14, making her still the fastest African-American woman marathoner. She continues to hold that title. And then Sika Henry, she is also somewhat local. She's in the Tidewater uh, Norfolk area. She's a well-known triathlete and the first professional African-American female triathlete. In 2020, she broke three at the Tidewater Striders Marathon in 257.13. We have a feeling that she will continue to break three. That was only her first. And then lastly featured is Shawana White. Shawana White has broken three more than any of the women featured. And um, she, I believe most recently broke three as listed in this in 2018 at the One City Marathon in 240. 519, but she may have done it since then. But we are very excited to say that we're going to be having Shawana on our podcast. She will be running Boston in April and she's run it many times before. And we really look forward to hearing more about her trajectory. She too is a master's runner. So these are the nine phenomenal women. And um, it's, it's a great documentary. Again, it's streaming on Amazon and we are very excited to introduce Tony Reed to everyone. And Tony, he has a tremendous story. He will share it, but he is most well-known for being the founder of the National Black Marathoners Association. But aside from that, Tony is also a CPA. And as he'll share in his story, he is quite a prolific marathoner. So one more thing I just wanted to mention, we, we wanted to talk about, um, you know, speaking of women and running Boston, um, just yet yesterday, was it yesterday or two days ago now? Oh, yes, thank you. 
yeah, the BAA made a big announcement that's been really well received and I think overdue, um, but they are going to allow deferrals for one or two years for any um, pregnant or I, I, I've got to look up that I didn't look exactly the terms, but I think pregnant or just post giving birth, um, right, post birth um, women runners, which is huge because there are so many runners who work really, really hard to qualify for Boston. They get in and then they're pregnant and they either have to go make that choice to run while they're pregnant or give up the opportunity. And now they're going to have that opportunity to defer for one or two years. And the BAA has also committed to making sure there are um, really um, good quality uh, uh, accommodations for women who may need to pump um, pump breast milk uh, during the race, before the race, in athletes' village after the race, and that can be a challenge for you know for women. We've heard plenty of stories of women who've had to pump in you know porta potties or in you know gross like conditions and, and or find their own condition, their own accommodations to do that. And it has not been easy. So this is a really big step forward. My my little plug, I, I I think the BAA still needs to still needs to take this into account with their um quarter century club and their streakers because I think women are at a disadvantage in terms of streaking because prior to this, I mean even now, women are going to miss some years when when they uh, give birth. I, my my years that I missed were the years that I gave birth to my kids. So I don't have a continuous streak. You know, I would have a, a 25 year continuous streak a lot faster if um, those years that I missed due to giving birth right around uh, the marathon were counted. So I think that's the one last little step that I selfishly would like to see happen. But this is a huge, huge step. And I think really well received um, unanimously uh, among runners and the community. I agree. And, and to your point, I hope it will also prevent injury because a lot of folks, including myself, I rushed back to running Boston because I, I qualified and it happened to work out. It was seven months after I gave birth to Ella. And I know if I was given a choice, I would have deferred to give my body um, additional time to recover. So yeah, I think this is a step in the right direction and hopefully many other marathons will follow, will follow suit it's, it's a wonderful addition and an important one. So absolutely. So without further delay, we're going to toss it over to Tony Reed. Lisa, I hope you have a great week. You too, Julie. Bye. Bye. Anthony Reed, also known as Tony Reed. Welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We know that many folks know who you are, but we would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and share a little bit about where you're from and a little bit more about your running career. Okay, thank you. Yes, uh, so thank you very much for having me. So my name is Tony Reed, and um, I have a kind of interesting story about how I got into distance running. I was about um, eight years old. I was at summer camp, and while I was there, I was diagnosed as having a pre-diabetic condition, and the doctor said I would go on insulin by the time I was a teenager. And um, I was fortunate in that I went to a high school where it was mandatory that you participate in a sport two out of the three seasons. And that third season, you had to take PE. So I ended up losing weight and did not have to go on insulin. But at that time, they really didn't understand the connection between health, let's say between um, being physically fit and going on insulin. In college, I read a book by Dr. Kenneth Cooper where he said diabetics who are dependent on insulin can either decrease their insulin intake or go completely off of it if they maintain a fitness program. So in 1976, I set a lifetime goal of running, walking, or crawling three miles a day. And uh, I've maintained a journal, handwritten journal since 1979. And as of the end of last year, I had logged 49,000 miles of running, uh, that included finishing 132 marathons on all seven continents and all 50 states. And I averaged, believe it or not, exactly three miles a day of running. And I will be 68 this year, and I'm still not on insulin. Um, so I have this, um, again, a lifetime goal of just averaging three miles a day of running. So that's roughly about um, 1,200 miles a year, roughly 100 miles a month. So that has been my goal my entire life. That is amazing that you set that goal for yourself so young and you've continued it through. How have you stayed healthy 
through all of that. I mean, in, injury free, you know, we hear that many marathons, that many miles. What, what is your secret to staying, staying injury free? I wish I did stay injury free. <laughs> That's the first uh, question. Are you in, have you stayed injury free? Well, when I first started running, um, it was great. I could run up to six miles with no problems whatsoever. Uh, anything beyond six miles, I started having problems with, with my knees. Uh, so with that, and again, this is as I said, before the invention of the internet, I ended up reading a lot of books and they said, hey, you know, you need to go to a, a sports podiatrist. So in uh, 1981, I went to a sports podiatrist, got hooked up with a set of uh, orthotics. And for a while, that took care of the knee problems. Um, so bear in mind, you're looking at around 1982 and think about what the running shoes were built like back then. Uh, the bottom of the shoes would typically wear out after about 250 to 300 miles. And so I would always toss them to get another pair. Then over time, they started changing the outer sole of the shoe so that they were lasting longer. And uh, for about a two-year period, I kept having knee problems. And from looking at my running journal and looking at when I was buying the running shoes and how long I was in the shoes, I realized my problem occurred because I put more than 250 miles on a pair of running shoes. So bear in mind, I weigh over 200 pounds. Now, lighter runners can easily go three to 400 miles on a pair of running shoes. Um, after 250 miles, um, for me, the bottom of the running shoes will look great, but the midsole and the cushion is just shot. So, um, it took me a couple of years to figure that out. And that was around 1990, 1990, yeah, 1990 to 1992. And after that, it's been injury free. So I swapped out the shoes. And a lot of shoes, a lot. You must have gone through a lot, a lot of pairs, pairs of shoes along the way. Um, what of, of all the marathons that you've run, and you've run many and you've run on all seven continents, do you have a favorite? My gosh, my favorite international marathon is the French Riviera Marathon. Oh, yeah. It runs from Nice to Cannes. Uh, the temperature that day was from 54 to 56 degrees. Uh, there are no noticeable hills in it. You have a Mediterranean to your left, beautiful French villas to the right. And every now and then you see these yachts and people out there windsurfing. Uh, it was my absolute favorite international marathon. Um, favorite U.S. marathon, and by the way, I prefer small marathons. So I've run, um, I jokingly tell people that I've had um, 12 top 50 finishes in marathons, and I've run 10 marathons with 50 or fewer people. <laughs> so, um, gosh, my favorite marathon. I guess, really, I would have to say it's the Dallas Marathon. Um, I've run that one over 20 times. Uh, I live here in Dallas. Uh, I like it because it's, it's not flat and it's not hilly. And I, I'm not a huge fan of marathons where it's just flat because I'm kind of beating up the same muscles over and over again. So I like marathons where there's a slight variation of changes of elevation, uh, so my favorite U.S. marathon would be the Dallas Marathon. That's great. The hometown marathon, you were just telling us that you ran 47 marathons in Texas alone before you got out of Texas. So that makes sense that Dallas, your, your hometown would be, would be your favorite. Um, so Tony, we met you um, when we were um, co-hosting a podcast last year in, in Boston, um, and we had Marilyn Bevins on our panel. And um, as you are the, the co-founder and the executive director of the National Black Marathoners Association since 2004. So tell us a little bit about um, the NBNMA and um, you know what, what kind of was the impetus for, for starting it and, and what are the origins? Okay. Um, yeah, so I had started running marathons around the U.S., and um, I would see every now and then another African-American runner, but um, it was hard to just kind of approach someone and say, hey, you know, it's great to see, you know, someone else out here running. 
So um, in 2001, I was speaking at a Black Data Processing Conference in Chicago. And I happened to mention that I had a goal of running 50 marathons uh, before I turned 50. And at that time, I had run about 47. And afterwards, uh, a bunch of Blacks approached me and said, we've never met someone who's run as many marathons as, as you have. So um, as we got to talking, they were saying, well, you know, but when you get ready to run your 50th marathon, let us know and we'll join you. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. Who, you know, I've never heard of like really traveling out of town just to run a marathon. Um, and so as 50th marathon approached, um, about seven of them showed up at, at this race. And uh, we had a great time. Uh, all seven of us either ended up winning age group or weight division trophies. So uh, we were talking about, you know, it would be great if, you know, we could get African-American marathoners together uh, from all around the country meeting once a year at a particular location. So over the next several years, Charlotte and I continued to stay in contact with each other. And then in 2004, we founded the National Black Distance Running Association, started the National Black Marathoners Association. Uh, we have always been a nonprofit organization. And we recognize the importance of getting a college education because a lot of uh, distance runners actually ended up graduating from college. So we start off as, as a, well, we are a nonprofit organization. Uh, we've awarded over $50,000 in college scholarships to, um, to students. Um, so that's one of our missions. Our second mission is to assemble as many distance runners as we can at a single location around the country. So that's where we started our annual summits. And we also wanted to recognize the accomplishments of African-American distance runners. So um, we added that to our, um, to our mission statement around 2012. Um, it was around 2012, I was contacted by um, Amby Burford from Runner's World. And he was writing this book called um, The First Ladies of Running. And so he uh, reached out to me as he was trying to get in contact with this lady named Marilyn Bevins because uh, he wanted to include her in the book and he kind of thought that maybe she was a member of our organization. So I looked, I didn't see her name in there. So I started doing some research on her and was shocked to find out that she was an African-American lady born and raised in Baltimore who placed second at the 1977 Boston Marathons and Chicago Marathons and had won marathons. And I was just shocked that I had never heard of this lady. So um, I got with our board members and we started talking about uh, African-American distance runners. And they said, hey, have you ever heard of a guy named Ted Corbett? And I said, the name vaguely sounds familiar. I said, but I really hadn't heard of, of him before. And they said, yeah, he's a Black marathoner up in the New York City. Um, you know, who was in a 1952 Olympic marathon. And oh, by the way, he's the one who came up with the method for certifying race courses. And as soon as they said that, I go, yes, I remember reading about him in books, but they never said he was African-American. So with that, we decided that we would start the National Black Distance Running Hall of Fame as a way of recognizing the accomplishments of African-American distance runners. And um, even though, by the way, we have marathon, marathons in our name, we're actually open to all distance runners. And so everyone from 5Ks to 10Ks, um, marathons, ultramarathons, and we recognize all these different accomplishments. Um, also around, I think it was 2014 or 2015, uh, we an email was forwarded to me um, from Shawana White. And Shawana had asked Amby and had also asked Gary Corbett, who is now our official historian, his Ted's son. Uh, she wanted to know how many African-American women have ever run a marathon in under three hours. So I remember I replied back. I was going, I don't think it's really possible to identify all those individuals because uh, they don't keep track of uh, people by ethnicity. And so I didn't think it was possible. Gary jumped on it. <laughs> and so um, 
he started developing what's called the list, which is uh, African-American women who have run marathons in under three hours. So that literally got started as a result of Shawana White asking that one simple question. We love that Shawana was the impetus for that because coincidentally, Shawana is coming on our podcast within the next few weeks. Um, because of course, after seeing the documentary, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, um, aside from you, we really wanted to have her on because she's one of the runners who's um, continuing to break three, but also she will be running Boston in April. And, and we, of course, are a Boston marathon focused podcast. So we love that it's coming together and that, of course, Shawana was the impetus. But and as you started collecting information for this database, how surprised were you by number one, how hard it was to find the information, and number two, by how few women actually fell into the category of running a marathon under three hours? Well, well Gary was the one who was doing all the research behind this. And I believe he started by looking at uh, individuals who had run in the Olympic trials. And then uh, he started posting information on different. Um, running blogs and um, boards about, you know, getting this information. And so slowly but surely, he started gathering all this information. Um, I was floored when I started looking at the actual numbers. So I'm, I happen to be a CPA, so I'm also somewhat of a numbers person. And to realize that Marilyn Bevins was the first one to break three hours at the 1975 Boston Marathon, and then just looking, starting at 1975, the number of people who had finished marathons in the US uh, has been roughly 14 million. Then um, I found that the roughly 2% of uh, marathons were finished in under three hours. So now you're looking at of that 14,280,000. And at the time we started working on a documentary in 2020, there were fewer than 20 African-American women who had ever broken three hours in a marathon. And statistically, I realized you have a higher probability of finding someone who was struck by lightning than you have of finding a US-born African-American woman who broke three hours in a marathon. And what was more surprising to me of that 20, I knew nine of them. And why, why do you think that is? I mean. Uh... What what factors do you think went into that? Like, why, why do you think there were so few? Um, I think it was because um, they weren't aware of others who had accomplished that particular goal. Um, I literally reflect back on when we started the National Black Marathoners Association, for example. Um, there weren't that many African-American marathons. And as we started publicizing different things, so for example, in 2007, I became the first African-American to run marathons on all seven continents. And on every tour group I went on, I was the only African-American uh, runner that was there. Uh, Runners World did an article about, about me the next year in February, 2008, along with uh, Ebony Magazine, they did two articles and since those articles came out, there has been an explosion of African-Americans doing international marathons. But even now there's a group called the Reggae Runners, for example, they take, I think, two to 300 marathoners, well, runners, if not more, down to the marathon in, um, in Jamaica every year. Uh, there are now African-Americans that are literally in groups traveling around the country, running marathons, and even a group that went to Antarctica, for example. Uh, back when I was running, I was kept thinking, if, if I can just get three other people to go with me, we could play uh, bid, we can play spades, we can play all these different card games, <laughs> but I was the only one. So once people became knowledgeable of, the, of these accomplishments, other people started following them. On our website, we have what we call um, our achievement page where we identify African-Americans, for example, who have um, run marathons or half marathons in all 50 states, seven continents, individuals who have run at least 100 and 200 and more marathons and half marathons. A friend of mine, in fact, who was instrumental in um, conceiving the idea for the documentary 
uh, with someone who was not a runner. Uh, she was a walker. And uh, she just finished uh, doing five and 10 Ks in all 50 states, which is something I didn't know, know if any other African-Americans had, had ever accomplished that. So, so it's truly, truly the mantra, if you see it, you can be it. And so bit by bit, by showing representation in different pockets of running, more people are seeing that being done and, oh, that's a great idea. But the difference between, to me, with um, accomplishing running a marathon in 50 states and accomplishing a sub three marathon, of course, is accomplishing a sub three marathon is takes a lot of athletic ability, you know, of course, proper training, but also just a lot of things really have to come together on race day. So since publicizing these statistics and of course coming out with the documentary and inducting some of these women into the hall of fame and many will be inducted this year, which we can talk about. Have you seen also an exponential rise in the number of African-American women who have broken three? Yes, I believe since we started the documentary and started publicizing it, I believe there are about three or four now that have broken three hours. Uh, so that doesn't seem like a lot, but when you consider that three or four is a percentage of 20, that's a significant increase. Uh, there were African-American women who, for example, had maybe run um, 305, uh, ones who were close to breaking three that decided, you know, I'm going to go ahead and train harder. You know, that that was a goal that, that they may have, you know, set, a, set aside and said, well, I'm not going to worry about that. It's just impossible. And then as they started seeing more and more individuals, you know, trying to do that and actually accomplishing that, they've dusted off their running shoes and they're going after three hours. Uh, one of the more interesting ones uh, was in 2021, I went to go see Marilyn Bevis getting inducted into the RRCA National Distance Running Hall of Fame. So that was part of a 4,500 mile road trip that I took that year. And uh, it was at the, at the convention that the friend of mine and I were talking and we kind of started talking about, well, you know, what more can we do to highlight the accomplishments of African-American distance runners? So uh, we ended up leaving Orlando where the Hall of Fame induction occurred, drove up to uh, the Virginia Beach area and had uh, dinner with Sika Henry and with uh, Lisa Davis. So Lisa Davis set the Guinness Book of Records for running marathons on all seven continents. She's African-American. So she set the world record for doing that. She's also done over 100 marathons, marathons in all 50 states and marathons on all seven continents. And Sika had become the um, country's first African-American professional triathlete, but she had not broken three hours. So I was talking with them about the concept of this, this documentary and uh, I believe it really motivated Sika to try to break three hours. And that next year, she broke three hours in a marathon. And this month, she just broke three hours again at the Houston Marathon. So uh, this thing has, uh, it, it's, it's, this is a snowball rolling down a hill. It's picking up a lot of momentum. Love it. So since you mentioned it, let's talk a little bit about the documentary. Um, just share with us a little, you just shared a little bit about how it started, but what was it like to create it and film it? You're not by, uh, your career is, you mentioned you're a CPA, you don't make documentaries. So how did you navigate that? And um, tell us a little bit about what surprised you the most when you interviewed each of the nine women featured. Okay, well, I came back from that road trip. It was about two and a half to three weeks, made my way back to Dallas and started doing a lot of researching about what it takes to make a documentary. Um, Gary Corbett put me in contact with a few other film directors. Um, and uh, from talking with them, I ended up developing the storyboard and then went and talked with uh, the folks at the, the BAA, the Boston Marathon, the New York Roadrunners, and uh, the 26.2 Foundation, which is also based in Boston. And they all agreed to fund the documentary. So this was in, um, in May, in May of 2021. 
And if you kind of remember around that time is when they were looking at the second major version of the virus kicking in. So I knew that we, we had a very limited amount of time, a very small window to try to get these interviews in. Uh, so uh, we ended up getting the funding in July. I'm looking kind of at my cheat sheet. Um, as soon as we got the funding, made the calls, all nine of the women agreed to be in the documentary. Uh, and we had all the interviews in about a one week period in August. So I had to fly to Detroit to interview Ella Willis. She wasn't able to fly. Uh, Michelle Tiff Hill, who lived in Tucson, her husband at that time had cancer and um, he had a low immune system. So she couldn't, so she couldn't travel. So we went to Tucson to do her interview. But all the other women lived on the East Coast. So we brought all of them into Arlington, Virginia, and we conducted the interviews at the RRCA's office in Arlington, Virginia. Um, the surprise interview was with Marilyn Bevins. And she said, well, since you're in a DC area, do you just want to film my segment at my home in Baltimore? And so my mouth just hit the floor and I go, sure, why not? Uh, so we, we, when we went up to interview her, she had her dining room table covered with all these all these memorabilia from her different marathons. She had the shirt that she had got from her very first Boston Marathon in 1975. She had all these awards and trophies out. I was just floored. Um, so um, the interesting thing, and I really wish that, that I, I had a recording of it, was uh, the first evening in Arlington, Virginia, when we had all these women there, with the exception of um, Michelle Tiff Hill and Ella Willis, was when they all sat down at the dinner table for the first time and the conversations that, that they were having. Um, it, it was just amazing about sponsorship, about the reasons they ended up getting out of distance running. They were talking about different races. And uh, it was just amazing. Um, for me, it was funny being the slowest one at the table <laughs> and just listening to them talk about their fast times, just like a person would talk about running a 10 or 12 minute mile. And they're talking about running, you know, sub six minute miles. So it was just, it was amazing. Um, That's incredible. And just noting, Lisa and I both, when we watched the documentary, we immediately noted that it was interesting that many of the women live in the DC or close by DC area. Um, for example, Samia Akbar and Elisa Harvey, they um, have been in the racing circuit that we've run in for many years and they're both from Northern Virginia. And of course, Marilyn, her very first marathon, and she talked about this when we did our live podcast in, in Boston was in uh, the Baltimore area. Um, so it's just very interesting that this area is, sort of became a little bit of, of a pocket of women who felt like they could get out there and run uh, marathons. And just curious, did they talk about at the table? We know they talked about it in the documentary as well, but did they mention some of the barriers that they encountered? And do you, or did they mention some ideas that they feel need to be imp implemented in the future to keep growing this group of runners to ensure that more African-American women can break through. Yeah, they, uh, they talked a lot about the different barriers that they encountered um, during the interviews. Surprisingly, they, they didn't talk about it very much at, at the dinner table. Uh, they were just really trying to get to know each other on a more personal level. Uh, but yeah, they, they had some really bizarre and interesting encounters. Um, such as people just not believing that they are as fast as they were and constantly having to say, yes, I really am this fast. Yes, I really have run those times. Uh, people that uh, would come back to them, for example, the next day and go, oh, I went out on the internet, you know, and I, and I Googled you and I found out you really did do that. And um, that was something that I think they, they really, really did not like is people just not believing them as far as their accomplishments go. Um, also, uh, some of the racism that, that they experienced, um, Michelle Tiff Hill talked about going to a party uh, at, uh, 
at an event where there were a lot of elite athletes and they, the guy stopped her at the door and says, we don't let in people in this party, you know, in this event. Um, then um, to me, one of the more interesting uh, things was with Michelle Bush Cook. Um, she uh, does not believe in running on the Sabbath, which for her was from um, sun, sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. And uh, to me, she's really, really good about sticking to her guns and sticking to her beliefs, uh, missing major races because they were held on the Sabbath. I mean, her commitment and determination was just fantastic. Um, while um, making a documentary, uh, I have to admit, one of the individuals I was thinking about was my, was my granddaughter. In fact, if you waited all the way to the end of the documentary and you hear someone say bye-bye, that's my granddaughter. Um, I found myself looking at um, some of the social media influencers, so to speak, in the distance running community. And I asked myself, do I want these individuals to be the ones to influence my granddaughter. And as I looked at it, I said, no. Uh, I want it to be, I want the women that are in this documentary who aren't known, I guess you might say, as social media influencers, but they have some amazing stories. They can throw down some fast times. These are the women that I want to serve as role models for my granddaughter. Uh, I think that's amazing. I think they're the, you know, they're the real hard workers that, that are, um, you know, are, aren't out there. Like you said, it's not, they're not being touted on social media, but they're really the hard workers that put in the work and, and, and made it, made it happen. I, I particularly liked at the very end of the documentary, there's a picture of the um, five-year-old girl who they're awaiting the Guinness record for the fastest 5k is like 22 minute 5k. And I'm sure a lot of people will look at her and say, wow, five years old, she can run 20. I mean, that, that to me was, um, was in inspirational because we do think about the next generation and we're talking here a lot about representation and why it matters and why it helps, you know, like you said, that snowball effect. And I think that's what we hope. And that's what, um, you know, I think we have probably started seeing, like you said, after, even after filming the documentary, even if it's four or five additional women who are now, you know, falling under this, this, you know, sub breaking three hours. Um, that's like you said, if it, it was from 1975 to 2019, we're 20, less than 20. And then now there are you know, four or five more. Um, that's hopefully that that's by, by, by putting together this documentary, by putting it out there. Um, and, and, and how have you found um, the reception to the documentary? How, what have you, we know, we know you've been out there screening it. It's been shown in a lot of places. It's available in a lot of um, formats now, but what, what's the reception been like? Where, you know, um, what, how, how, uh, you know, how are you getting it out there? Uh, the reception to the documentary has been extremely well. Um, we did a showing of it there at Boston which was, which was where we also did some of the filming. So um, we transitioned between the runners with young ladies from track clubs there in the Boston area. And uh, I remember when we showed it there in Boston last year, uh, we invited all those young ladies to come back again. And um, this one young lady prior, prior to showing the documentary uh, we were trying to get her to take photos with uh, Elisa Harvey, who was there, Marilyn Bevins, and the young lady and her mother were like, kind of, well, you know, who are these people? And, you know, just, just don't know anything about them. And then after the documentary, they go, oh, my goodness, can we get a picture with you? You know, we had no idea. So um, the reaction has been really, really good. Um, Last year, we went through the film festival process and uh, showing a movie to, to different focus groups. The initial version of the documentary, and I'm, this is going to sound crazy to say this, but uh, the first time I showed it um, to my family members, they fell asleep. <laughs> and I literally woke them up and said, no, you, you have to watch this and give me feedback. And so they watched it, they gave me feedback and ended up making changes to it. And all throughout the film festival process, uh, we were getting feedback from individuals. Uh, the initial documentary, for example, was an hour and 44 minutes long. And people initially said, well, we think that's too long. 
But then they would turn around and say, yeah, but I watched it two or three times. It was so good. And so with that, I realized that before people look at a movie today, they look at the length of it and to kind of decide whether or not they want to watch it or not. So with that, we ended up reducing the length of it down to an hour and 19 minutes. So we've made, gosh, I think 10 major releases since, um, since it initially came out, but making it better and better each time. And so we ended up getting um, 13 awards at film festivals around the world. Uh, as a result, I, as I like to say, just shutting up and listening to what people were saying without kind of already thinking about how I'm going to respond. So just be quiet, listen, and but you know, I think that's a great lesson in life, Tony. Is I mean, it's a skill to learn how to take constructive feedback, sit back, listen, and be able to implement it. And look where it got you. You made those changes, and suddenly, as you mentioned, your film started winning awards, which is quite incredible. Given that, again, you're not a filmmaker by trade, so. <laughs> For this to be your first rodeo and win awards is, is quite incredible. So congratulations. Thank you. We know that one of the missions of the documentary, of course, is to, is to bring attention to the fact that, again, there are only, at the time of filming the documentary, there are only nine women in this category. So hopefully by shining a light on this, it will continue to grow. But generally, as, as the founder of the MBMA, NBMA, what changes do you think personally need to be made in distance running to better support African-American distance runners? That's a good question. Um, one of the things that I feel that, that we need is more financial support from the running community at large. Uh, we spend millions of dollars uh, with, the, with the different retailers, uh, with the apparel, uh, apparel suppliers and manufacturers. And, um, we would love for them to, prov to provide more financial support to our organization, for example. Um, people have already been asking me about, you know, well, are you going to do another documentary? You know, after looking at this one. And I say, well, yes, this is, but we would need financial support. Um, so I think that that is the, the big thing also that if they were to promote the documentary uh, to their you know, to their customers would also go a long way to um, encouraging more people to get off to get off the couch and to go running. Uh, I kind of reflect back to my friend who was not a runner, who as a result of meeting these individuals decided they were going to do five to 10 Ks in all 50 states. Um, so for me, it's important that we get the financial support that we need from the very companies where we have where we have been spending money. Um, so I think that's, that's the main thing. And I'm just happy to see the growth in African-Americans and distance running since we started, since we have started our organization. We kind of have been the, uh, the leader in just about every area. Uh, so for example, uh, we recognize that if we want to increase the number of African-American distance runners, we need to increase the number of African-American certified coaches. Uh, so um, when I took my RRCA coaching class, I believe I may have been the only one in there. Uh, we then had two or three classes of African-Americans attending. And now you can go to one of their classes and you're bound to see three or four, if not five African-Americans attending the classes. So we have seen that growth, which in turn feeds back into the African-American community and increases the number of African-American distance runners. So, and again, with uh, traveling to different race, race locations, uh, recognizing the accomplishments of African-American distance runners, uh, we have our uh, Africa, the uh, National Black Distance Running Hall of Fame event every other year. And at that same event, we recognize the achievements of African-American distance runners. So that's when they can get their awards for doing 50 states, seven continents. Uh, to bring attention to the Boston Marathon, for example, uh, we've said that if you have qualified for and run at least three Boston Marathons, you know, you'll get recognized at the, at the Hall of Fame event also. So again, that inspired people to kind of dust off their running shoes and say, you know, I was that close to qualifying for Boston before, 
I'm going to go ahead and, and pursue it. That's great. Speaking of Boston, um, in 2019, I think the MBMA fielded its first Boston team of four women. Is that if that's if that's correct in the Masters Division? Um, was there a team last year, and are you going to have a team this year? Uh, there was not a team last year, and we're not going to have a team this year. Um, in order to in order to have to have a team, I believe they all have to live like within the same geographical area. Right. And so. Our members it's hard. <laughs> all over the country. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. And um, and so so what next? What you know, what we know it sounds like then the next um Hall of Fame will be inducted in 2024 if you're doing it every two years. Correct. And and what what what's what what lies ahead? It, other than another documentary, which we hope um gets funded and and because we like we we've very much enjoyed um, getting to know the stories of these nine women, but we also know there are many more coming up that have have um, similarly inspiring stories. Um, so so what what next? Ideally for you, what what's next? Well, that's that's a question everyone asks a runner. As soon as you finish a goal, the next thing. Of course, <laughs> as soon as you're done with your documentary, what's next? As soon as you're done with your marathon, what's next? Um, well, we're going to be having our. Um, summit this year, uh, in fact, next month in Jackson, Mississippi. And so we're already looking, of course, at planning our 2024 summit. So that's literally what's, what's on my mind at this point in time. Um, so we're looking at having something out on the West Coast because we've had a lot of conferences like in the Midwest and the East Coast. So we're looking at having it at a West Coast location. And uh, the focus on um, bringing some of those West Coast runners also into the uh, the National Distance Running Hall of Fame. Uh, so, and my other project is uh, babysitting. Right, you mentioned you have grandchildren, so, correct? Yeah, so the, so the more grandchildren I have, the more I get tied into babysitting. And does that allow you time for running still? What about you in terms of your running goals? You've done so much already. Do you have any any plans? Are you training for anything? Anything on the horizon? Um, I'm not training for anything specifically, but I still have my lifetime goal of averaging 100 miles a month. And so I don't run every day, but when I do run, I run an average of nine miles. So during a given week, for example, I may do one run of three to six miles, maybe a nine mile run, and then run anywhere from 12 to 15 miles. So I'm doing that even when I'm not training for a race. That's great. And we know you're inspiring your grandkids as you do that. We wouldn't be surprised if they um, start running after you very, very soon. Yeah. So, well, Tony, thank you so much. This has been, um, you know, you've, it's been such a, a, a wonderful, um, you know, opportunity to get to know you, um, just getting to know you um, last year at Boston. And um, when we, when we were able to have Marilyn come be a part of our, our podcast um, and getting to see the process of the documentary, we know um, we were really excited when we watched the documentary, see a quick snippet of a picture of our panel at the end, which is a real treat for us. So thank you for including that. And we know that you mentioned that you kind of added that in at the last minute and changed a little bit of, of the end um, toward the end. So that was really great for us to see. And, and we really um, respect and admire what you're doing. And um, when you're amplifying um, the stories of, of these women, you're not only, um, you know, promoting fast women runners um, and African-American runners, but encouraging and inspiring everybody um, to get involved, uh, regardless of race, religion, background. I think it's um, kind of universal that we see and we hear the stories of these runners. And um, like you said, the, the runners at dinner who were talking about these fast paces, they're talking about it just like you and I would talk about running slower paces. We all have a commonality of running and of working hard toward a goal. And um, some just happen to finish the, finish the race a little bit faster. But we think that this uh, documentary, again, is not only applicable to, to fast runners or African-American runners, but to, to all runners and non-runners and, and is very inspirational. So we thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, and we are impressed by all of your accomplishments and we've really uh, appreciated all that you're doing to, to support the running community. Well, thank you very much. It's been great talking with you and getting a chance to see you again. And uh, hopefully I'll see you up at Boston this year. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tony. And in our show notes, we're going to link, of course, the documentary and all of your social media and, of course, links to your organizations that you founded and all of your activities. 
but before we go, if someone wants to stream the documentary as an event, how can they get in touch with you to do that? Uh, they can get in touch with me through the website, uh, breaking3hours.com. And um, so they can reach out to me that way, or either through the uh, National Black Marathoners website. Uh, my email address is tonyreed at blackmarathoners.org. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tony, and we wish you continued happy running. Thank you. Take you have care. a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.